Right. Greetings and salutations. Thank you, as always, to DJ Jacques and Winstrong. You are now listening to episode number 69 of High Times Presents Free Weed from Danny Danko. Yes, episode 69. This one is for the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, yeah, we just got back from Seattle Cannabis Cup. Uh, we had quite a great time in Washington State. Everything was pretty amazing. The judging process went great. Um, the cup itself was amazing. We had some celebs in the house, which was great. Yeah, little David Arquette showed Dave up. Dave Arquette, and, uh, yeah. A football gentleman. Uh, Kevin Gogan. Kevin Gogan. Two-time Super Bowl champion mm-hmm. for the uh, Houston... I think uh, the uh, Dallas Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys? Yeah. The Troy That's Aikman right. led Dallas Cowboys. That's he had right. two Super Bowl rings that could fit on me like bracelets. <laughs> yeah, indeed. He was a... Is a big, big guy, big guy and yeah. Uh, yeah, and he uh, uses medical marijuana for his ailments that he, you know, procured after 14 years in the uh, in the NFL, mm-hmm. which was great. Yeah, and uh, you know everything ended up working out okay. Uh, of course, I five hundred two Washington put the control of marijuana on the uh, the liquor board, right? So it was a bit of an issue uh, based on liquor licenses and where you could smoke. But we ironed it all out. It was a great weekend, mm-hmm. and um, you you judged. What was your category? I was in the medical concentrates category, and there was quite a number of amazing, amazing uh, uh, BHOs and dabs and things of of that nature in that uh, contest. And we're we're not going to do the whole list. If you want to see the winners, just go to HighTimes.com and, and check out the Seattle results. But who won in your category? I. I got it here, actually, if you want me to just say it. First <laughs> sure. place was Blue Dream uh, Tangy from Vader Extracts and oh, Grateful Meds. Yes, sir. Vader Extracts. They want a bunch of stuff there. And, uh, yeah, they have uh, definitely some high-quality extracts for sure. Um, and that's the one – I mean, that was like – in our category, everyone thought that was the first place. It wasn't even there was really no, uh, no debate. much of a dispute. Yeah. Mm. So that was great. And uh, the Whalers – performed uh, yes. Saturday night, which was really cool. Yeah, um, we, we had them in Amsterdam, and they were terrific. So uh, we brought them back for Seattle. They put on a great show. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, it was in Everett. I keep saying Seattle, but right. it was in Everett, Washington. North of Seattle, mm-hmm. Everett, Washington. And uh, yeah, it was just cool to just be in the Pacific Northwest and, 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 you know, partake of all of the amazing pot and hash that they have there. And, you know, just catch up with them since uh, all this 502 stuff has gone down and just see they you know they have rec stores they have uh, dab lounges and, and just all kinds of cool stuff uh, where you can go and enjoy the uh, the herbal pleasures of uh, <laughs> of the Pacific Northwest so. indeed all right so we have a couple of of issues to address we have a couple things to talk about but we're gonna save it for the wrap so what we're going to do is is present the live free weed that we recorded out mm-hmm. in Everett, Washington. But stick around for the wrap because uh, Dan and I have to go over a couple of very important issues. Absolutely. Set and, us uh, up for this. What what was this panel all about? It was a great panel. Um, basically, we had an hour on uh, on Sunday from three to four, and you know, got some experts up there to really talk about 
growing, to talk about breeding, um, to talk about you know not just the basics of growing, but all the new uh, new things that are are happening because of the legality of of cannabis. So these big warehouse grows and uh, you know large extraction operations and all kinds of interesting stuff. So. Um, yeah, very excited about the panel. I think, you know, afterwards people were still asking questions long after the panel was over and we went outside and, um, yeah, people were very excited, you know, DJ Short, Kenny from Tricome and, um, Scott from Rare Dankness and Mike Booten from uh, Weed Wars. So uh, a wide variety of, you know, indoor, outdoor, big, small, you know, all different types of techniques, um, as I always say, there's no one way to grow pot. So it's very interesting to get all these different people's opinions and, uh, you know, some interesting stuff. And I hope you guys enjoy. Um, so without further ado, so actually one more further ado, uh, this panel is brought to you guys with no interruption, um, by our, our favorite sponsor, BC Northern Lights. Uh, the grow boxes are amazing. You got to check them out online, bcnorthernlights.com. They have an 800 number that you can call almost any time just to get advice, to get prices, to get um, any kind of information that you want. Their customer service is impeccable. Their grow boxes are uh, unstoppable. And so get yourself a BC Northern Lights grow box. Thanks to them for uh, sponsoring the show. And we don't have to interrupt this panel for you guys. You can go all the way through and we will catch up with you at the wrap. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to a live recording of Free Weed from Danny Danko. Thanks for joining us. I don't know if we have any podcast listeners in the audience. Anyone Free Weed? It's nice to hear. I'm Mike Hughes. Uh, let, let me just say this is our second U.S. Cannabis Cup in Washington. We're really excited to be here with all of you, and we have an excellent panel. So get ready for some cultivation information. And if you have any questions that you'd like to ask, uh, keep them in mind. We're going to go in the audience and do some of that at the end of the seminar. So without further ado, please give a warm welcome to High Times Senior Cultivation Editor, Danny Danko. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here with you guys again. Um, you know, Washington's doing big things. Very, a lot is changing all over the country. Um, but I also want to always emphasize that this war isn't over until uh, all the prisoners are free and all the people are out of jail for nonviolent marijuana offenses. Um, I'm excited about this panel. We have uh, some, some experts in cultivation, in breeding, in uh, growing on a large scale, uh, growing for connoisseurs, growing indoors, outdoors, greenhouses. So I'm gonna get right to it. Uh, to my left is Kay from Tricome Technologies. He's, his gardens have been featured in High Times for decades. Um, greatest gardens many times in High Times. Uh, really cutting edge stuff even back in the 90s um, with hydro and aeroponics and, and all of that. He's a consultant in the business now that uh, works on these large-scale grows and um, also very knowledgeable about uh, extracts and concentrates and um, terpene preservation and isolation and all of that. So uh, welcome Kay from Tricome Technologies. To his left uh, is Scott from Rare Dankness uh, Genetics, an uh, incredible seed bank that's won cannabis cups all over the world. 
Uh, you also may know him from uh, the pre-Cannabis Cup winning days as Moonshine Man from the Overgrow and uh, all the different uh, forums that are out there for people to check out and uh, trade clones and seeds. He was very instrumental in that uh, you know, 90s and early 2000 period of, of, of sharing of genetics that led to a lot of the reasons why we're able to be the connoisseurs we are now. So uh, yeah, Cannabis Cup winner multiple times, Scott from Rare Dankness. And to Scott's left, uh, you may recognize him from uh, Weed Wars <laughs> on television. Uh, an incredible grower in California, outdoor uh, expertise as well as uh, indoor and greenhouse knowledge, Mike Booten. <laughs> so thank you, Mike. Uh, to Mike's left, a legend in uh, cannabis breeding and growing and connoisseurship, uh, the creator of legendary strains like Blueberry, uh, which everybody knows and uses in all kinds of different breeding projects. Uh, Flow, Old Time Moonshine, and many, many others, Mr. DJ Short. So we're going to start basically at the beginning and uh, for beginners and just talk about the basics of uh, growing. And um, Kay, if you could just basically outline for people what it is they're trying to do when they're converting you know, light into energy for plants? Well, the first thing you want to think about is doing that process efficiently. You, you don't want to produce unnecessary heat, too many lights, et cetera, et cetera, especially with the new emerging market with, you have, you know, places like uh, Nevada and Arizona. I mean, you know, you could end up spending 25% of your power or of, of, of your profit just on power. Just if, if, if you don't heat up the box, you don't have to cool the box. So it's efficiency, the efficiency in lighting, the efficiency in the way that you actually produce the product. So, you know, that's kind of like paramount right there. And, uh, you know, as far as people uh, who've purchased a pack of seeds and don't really know, you know, now what do I do with this? What, what's your recommendation as far as um, getting a good germination rate early on? Well, germination rate is first getting a, your seeds from a really good qualified producer like Scott, like DNA or someone like that. Don't go on the internet and buy some of these seeds on like Craigslist and stuff like that. You know, buy them from a reputable dealer first and foremost because they're going to produce a quality product for you. So that after that, you know, it's, it's about how to germinate, you know. Some people put them in a moist paper towel. Some people like to put a 10% bleach solution in water first, soak them so you can sterilize the outside, then put them into your uh, paper towel with uh, uh, distilled water or something like that. Let them start to pop. Take them immediately. Put them in you know, whatever medium you choose, whether it's soil or you know, uh, moss or whatever you're going to use. And then after that, you know, it starts just the basic growth uh, process. Yeah, it's, and then it's about environmental control. You know, can you, can you accommodate that plant with the perfect environment, with the proper humidity, the proper temperature, and everything else that it takes to take that plant through its whole life? All right, and Scott, um, you know, people assume if they buy, you know, a 10-pack of seeds, they're going to get a keeper um, out of that. Um, what's the best way for them to get a high germination rate so they'll have a good idea of uh, which ones they can pick and choose for moms? Um, I think most people tend to, you know, overthink starting seeds. I mean, it is agriculture. Uh, you know, you can throw them down in just about anything uh, as long as you're not keeping them too hot or too moist. Um, cannabis seeds, you know, sprout, you know, relatively easy as long as they're good quality seeds. 
Um, you know, the biggest mistakes I see are people keeping humidity domes on too long, you know, keeping the, the substrate too moist, you know, right from the get-go, which encourages molds and, um, you know, bacteria to attack the embryo before it ever has a chance to really get out and get going. All right. And Mike, um, it seems to be a mistake that I see a lot among growers early on. They end up with really stretchy plants because either the light is too far away or for whatever reason. What's a good way during the vegging cycle to keep things nice and short and bushy? Uh, well, one of the ways, like you said, is, is it's in the lighting. You can have the lighting too far away. You can have inadequate lighting. Uh, but one of the ways that we always did it, I don't know if you've ever heard of the 12 plus 1 method of lighting, and, and there's a little bit of controversy about that out there, I know, but we used it successfully. Uh, it's, it's, it's taught in greenhouse technique, uh, college textbooks, and uh, something about the 12 and 1 lighting where you give the plant 12 hours of light, and then you give it 5 and a half hours of dark, then you give it 1 hour of light, 5 and a half hours of dark, it keeps it right on the edge of flowering, but it doesn't allow the plant to flower. It, you'll get uh, pre-flower hairs, and you'll get very, very tight internodes. And the plants are very, very healthy because they have a lot of time to convert the, the, their photosynthesis process. They have the time to convert the energy that they've stored, uh, you know, because they have a good sleep cycle. Um, speaking of interesting lighting techniques, uh, DJ has an interesting one for the flowering uh, cycle, which is not necessarily the one that's taught in, in most of the books that you'll read or the videos that you'll watch. So I'll let him describe, uh, describe that and why you might want to try. Sure. I think we're all pretty much accustomed to the 12-12 flower cycle. Um, this tip was given to me in the mid-80s by some old-timers back then who said, make your dark period a little longer. Um, I ended up gravitating toward the uh, 13 on, 11 off light cycle. And what that does is it allows certain phenotypic expressions um, to express themselves uh, that you, don't, you wouldn't normally see on the 12-12. It um, also can actually increase production because plants take in food during the day. And the main source of food for the plant is light. All the other things we give it are to help it supplement the chlorophyll um, process to feed itself. Um, so uh, plants take in nutrient during the day. They put fiber on during the night cycle. Uh, so they tend to stretch a little bit more at night. And I've just been using this with great success. Again, it's, it's how do we coax out these various phenotypic expressions that are in a strain. Uh, an example I like to give is, we, is, is, it's common knowledge, you take a mother plant, you can do 12 identical clones off that mother plant, give it to 12 different people in 12 different environments and end up with 12 different types of medicine um, at the end. These are environmental influences um, affecting uh, uh, phenotype, bringing out some, some greater diversity. You also save a little bit on electricity as yeah, well. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, can I add to that? I'm yes, absolutely. I've actually, uh, you know, me and DJ have become friends over the last couple of years, and we've had many talks on this. And in the last year, I've really implemented it and started to watch, you know, the results happen. Uh, you're seeing, you know, crops that would typically take 63 to 67 days come down 56 to 59 days. Uh, I've seen actual 10 to 15% yield increase instead of decrease that you would see from, you know, dropping your light. 
And then, you know, ultimately, if you've got 18 or 20K running, you're saving a lot of money on your electricity bill. Like, it's yeah. something to look at and try. Yeah, and there's lots of different things to play around with. Um, like Mike was saying, playing with this 12 on, 5.5 off, 1 on, lots of different things. And what people need to be doing at this stage of the game is keeping good notes. Play around with things, try different things, and just keep notes on everything. Primarily, how is that medicine affecting me at the end? And if I did something during the regimen that brought on something I desire, well, I definitely want to incorporate that. And you do that by uh, keeping good notes. Mike? Yeah, and one thing that I would add to that is, uh, you know, I was telling you about the 12 plus 1. One of the, the things that we do is exactly what these guys do too. Uh, and the reason it also helps with the 12 plus one to go 11 hours in bloom is because you've kept them on the edge of flowering and I've always wanted them to get a very definitive message that, yeah, no, we're not messing with that one hour anymore. This is showtime. And within a week to 10 days on a plant like that, you'll see uh, already buds formed, you know, like the size of one of your little fingertips. You know, it, it really does work. It, it, it's something to look into, like they're saying. Uh, along those same lines, we're talking about, uh, you know, flowering times and, and what your lights are on for what period. Now, some people during the vegetative time recommend 24-hour uh, light. Um, I personally don't recommend that, and I think it goes back to what DJ said about plants, um, you know, building fiber during the night. Um, what, what are your guys' ideal... Is it 18 on, 6 off? Is it 20 on, 4 off during the vegetative stage of growing? Yeah, I dialed in actually 19, 5, uh, mainly to keep my male alive. I, th I, th I think I have the oldest male in the industry. He's 98, was born in 98. Um, so what are we at now? 16 years on the male. Wow. So, and that's 19, 19 on, on, 5, five off. off. Okay. Yep. And then when you, would, if you were going to switch to flowering, you would go... 13 off, 11 on. Correct. Straight to the 11 on, 13 off. Hey, one thing I'd like to add to, uh, on that note, one thing I'd like to add, if I hate to have you leave with in, incomplete 12 plus 1 information, if I was going to go back to growing again tomorrow, currently Tony and I don't have a location, but if we were going to do it, the only thing that I would do different is I would, we had our moms under 12 plus 1 too. Some strains really don't like that. And so what, what I would change is I would go to a longer photo period, but just for my mom room. So 18 or 19 or yeah, so? Yeah, 18. Actually, now that I heard DJ say that, I'd, I'd probably try 19 that. 19 and 5. I'd copy him, steal that from him. Cool. And uh, you had a follow-up, right? Okay. Well, first I want to say, you know, I absolutely agree with what DJ said about record-keeping and notes and everything else. That has to do with your lighting schedules, your feeding schedules, your pH, how your city water changes over the year from summer to winter and all those things. But now that you've got those plants sprouted, what do you do with that 10-pack of seeds? Are they all created equal? No, there's some that are better than worse. There's some that are males and some that are females. So after you cultivate them and get them 12 to 16 inches tall, you can take two clones off each one so in case you lose one you don't lose that valuable information you'll label each one one through ten but there's one through ten the progeny after you have the progeny labeled one through ten you know where it came from on the mother and from that you can now artificially twelve uh, well uh, change your lighting regimen to twelve and that will immediately tell you what's a male and what's a female without putting undue stress on the female that you've got growing 
So you didn't stress it or anything else. So it's continuing to grow. You know it's a male, you know it's a female. You've done your elimination of males if you choose to do so. And now you can take clones off that, that female again so you can continue the next generation in case you get something you like. Now you're gonna take that original and you're gonna finish it to see if the finished product is something you want. Is it too tall, too gangly, too lanky? Does it have the desired characteristics you're looking for? And that right there is how you get what you want in the finish of that 10 pack. Right, and what he's talking about is basically, you know, you can buy packs of seeds and grow from seed all you want, um, but a, a lot of times growers, especially particularly on a commercial scale, they want to have a mother plant from which they take cuttings. They know it's a female because they flowered that corresponding clone, and now they have that female that's never flowered, but they know how it's going to behave and they take clones from it, and that way you get a level canopy in your grow room. You know exactly how every plant is going to behave. They all, they're all from the same plant, so they behave very similarly. And um, you know, for production purposes, that's important. And one of the things these guys all share is that as you know, the legalization movement has moved forward and people have been able to grow plants legally, the grows are getting bigger and bigger. And even, even in situations where there are plant limits, there's ways to make one plant you know, yields, you know, five to 10 pounds in some instances dry. Um, I wanted to ask Mike in particular for outdoor growers, you know, what are the, the limiting factors if you're in full sun um, with a plant? Um, and how, how do people getting these big, you know, huge monster plants in Cali? I mean, how early does that process start um, in order to get these big, you know, overhead sized plants? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and first off, before I respond to that, I want to say that week before last, Tanya and I were in Denver, and we went to a grow there that was 3,500 amps. And just to characterize that for you, most homes in the U.S. have what they call a 200-amp service. They rarely would ever even be using as much as 100 at one time. So this is a legal grow, just one in Denver, that had 3,500 amps going full-time. It was astonishing. It was amazing. Uh, some of the people there were like saying to me, oh, we're really, really happy to meet you. And oh, and, and I said, stop with that. Are you kidding me? You guys make us look like amateurs. It was really amazing. But in terms of the outdoor, uh, again, you have to start with good genetics. One of the best things you can do is try to match up your genetics with your location because certainly I can speak on California and uh, what you could grow in Los Angeles County is a lot different than what you could grow in Humboldt County. So if you can match up your latitude or your, your geographic region with, with genetics that are favorable, uh, that's the first step. The second step is that uh, I've found that marijuana likes a hole that's a heck of a lot wider than deep. Uh, and it needs a lot of good drainage. Uh, the most sun that you, you can get, it clearly. Uh, but then sometimes that's also a detriment because I'm not from Arizona, but some places in Arizona are very, very uh, dry and no humidity at all. And, and those plants will suck water out of the ground so fast that you have to change it up and maybe try to keep a little bit more water in the hole. So, it's kind of tricky, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we suggest to people that if you're going to grow, find something that you like and then learn how to grow that very well, no matter whether you're indoors or outdoors. Find out what it likes. And 
then move on to the next strain. If you're always chasing the next strain, you're going to be growing a lot of mediocre pot because you won't learn anything. I don't know if that answered the question. Yeah, so you're saying that different strains, you have to dial them in differently, sure. their feeding process, uh, where they like to be. Sure, and they relation. might not even like where you live because they're, 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 the, the characteristics of where they came from aren't favorable to where you live. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure that, Scott, you can speak on this as well. What are some of the, uh, the factors that come into play when you go into these larger size warehouse grows? Uh, and, ha and how do people deal with uh, those, those uh, things that might arise? You know, every, everything changes. I mean, you have to, uh, once you step into a commercial warehouse grow, you have to lose that basement mentality. I mean, it becomes commercial agriculture to a point. Uh, it becomes uh, commercial pharmaceutical to a point. I mean, you have to maintain levels of cleanliness and protocol that, you know, it's it's uh, it can be mind-numbing and nerve-rattling sometimes when you see, you know, you go into a facility and you see owners traipsing through investors that, you know, haven't gone through, a, you know, a clean shower and putting on the booties and, you know, the suit or whatever. Um, I mean, one little bug, one little microbe, you know, one little fungus, you know, spore gets in there and you know, you're out a bunch of money. And one of the things that we've really started preaching now that we're moving into Illinois and Connecticut and starting to set up some of these large grows there, we've seen it in Colorado. So you prepare these people, you know, like you have to be able to understand that you have to lose one full crop. At some point, you're going to lose a whole crop because of somebody's stupidity or or lack of effort or whatever. And if you can't afford to lose that half million dollars or one million dollars or whatever that room or, or greenhouse is worth, like, don't play the game. Like, you don't belong in it at this point. Yeah, I can see Kay is, is also nodding along. He's told me about times where he's gone in and seen just, you know, devastation and people losing money hand over fist. Yeah, I mean, it's happening day in and day out. And right now you're talking about investors that are, you know, private investors that might be small business owners that have a, you know, small nest egg that they're willing to invest. But, I mean, right now we're talking to eight different Wall Street investment groups that want to build a national franchising. And those guys aren't going to mess around and allow you to screw up and, and miss the, you know, drop the ball or miss the beat one time. Mm -hmm. You've got to be on top of your game. But in some yeah. sense, one of, some of them want to tell us what to do. They want to yeah. tell me and uh, Scott how to do our job, how, how the medium should be, how the, the method of manufacture should go. Maybe they have a background in growing or horticulture in some way. But it's, it's kind of funny that people still have preconceived notions that this is an easy job. They've got a hippie Scott. cousin that did it. He smoked for years. <laughs> and anybody can do this shit. And it's like, wow, it's especially when you take it to a large, large scale like that. I mean, I've seen multi-million dollar facilities produce the best pot in the world only to turn around and screw it up in the drying and curing. It's like, yeah. dude, do you realize you're trying to get rid of 350 gallons of water today? In the next 48 hours, you're trying to get rid of 100, 200 gallons of water. Yeah, there's no you, dehumidification no, unit that'll do that no, on the market. No, they think they can just put a, a heater and a dehumidifier in that room, and it's gonna, at 21 pints a day, it's going to get rid of all that water. 
some, to some degree, you're, you're, you're fighting people, uh, investors, you know, and, and, but trying to protect them from themselves and tell them how you're trying to secure their future by doing certain procedures and processes like decontamination. You just can't trape the general public through these things. I mean, every, like you said, the mentality from the, the basement grower completely changed. It's real world production. Look how your food's produced in some of the largest greenhouses in the world. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Eurofresh Farms at 318 acres in Arizona went bankrupt because they couldn't control the bug and disease they, they, they went rampant. They had to file for bankruptcy. I mean, they, they could hire any university, any doctor, any scientist, any magic bullet guy in the world to fix their problem and couldn't. Hmm. All right. Well, DJ, uh, question for you. Um, in, in your opinion, what do you think separates, uh, let's call it, let's say just B grade or, or average sort of cannabis from cannabis cup winning, you know, connoisseur quality cannabis? What's... What makes the difference there? Um, right now, the Tropic of Cancer, basically. No, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm old school. Um, A-grade herb comes from the tropics, okay? Um, we will never produce A-grade herb, I'm sorry. We're getting very close to producing A-grade hash, which is, we're in the environment to do. But the special herb comes from the tropics between 23 North, 23 South, um, where direct overhead sunlight happens uh, twice a year, which um, eliminates the filter of the atmosphere considerably, and a lot of ultraviolet radiation is able to get through. The only exception to this rule is Nepal. Um, because it's technically not in the tropics, but it has the elevation of the Himalaya. Um, just so many things on that topic. The um, sativa from way back when that I'm trying to replicate, okay, the Highland, Oaxacan, uh, the Punta Roya was my favorite. The uh, Santa Marta Gold was wonderful. The Guerrero Green, the Highland Ties. Um, and they didn't have the trichome that we're familiar with now. They had these hairs, these systolithic hairs that secreted oil directly onto the surface of the leaf. Um, in my opinion, the glandular stalk trichome plants were bred strictly for hash production outside of the tropics, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Morocco, and the main form of hash extraction in those places is some form of sieving. Um, so, you know, th th that's kind of where I'm at with it. Now, one positive thing uh, that's coming up in the future here, Uruguay, of course, legalized, mainly for the locals, mainly just to stop the, the pot gangs from Paraguay. Um, but in their law, it's written for export. Okay, so it's on the books. Now, Bolivia... Um, Ecuador and Colombia are all considering following suit. And if we can get Colombia or Bolivia or Ecuador to export pot, we may be able to see some A-grade herb again um, here. And I don't mean to discourage people with that, um, but realistically, I think the future here will be in concentrates and extracts and the various ways we do that. That's going to be my focus toward the future. I want to do R&D, produce a hash plant, 
it's going to be nothing like what we're accustomed to, these big bulbous Christmas trees in California. It's going to be very leafy, very airy, and it's going to produce resin through the season. So basically, come late July, early August, what's going to happen is the top 18 inches of the canopy comes off. This is outdoor, incidentally. I, my goal is to grow under the sun. Um, and just do that every three weeks then. You get that 18 inches back, and there is a cannabinoid profile in certain strains very early on. And when growing for extract, there is so much labor that isn't used. What, what, no manicuring, no, you know, and, and also things like uh, molds and, and diseases are just uh, much easier to control on a, on a hash plant than a very tight bud plant. Um, so, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's my hit. Focus on concentrates. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Mike, you had a follow-up? Oh, yeah, I did want to speak to that because DJ's right on the money. And, and one of the things, I get a lot of questions, you know, people, and I, listen, guys, I, I love to talk to people. People, I can see they look like, well, I don't want to bother you. No, come here and talk to me. I, I love to talk to people. But they always ask me questions about growing that really what I've become... What I've started to do when I teach seminars or I teach people a class on how to grow is the first thing I teach them is you have to ask yourself some questions before you can proceed. It's just like fishing. You could go into any tackle store, and if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish for the day, how do you know what to take off the shelf? How do you, uh, same with cooking, you go into a supermarket, you could just be completely overwhelmed by all the choices, but not if you go in there knowing what you're trying to be about. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, why am I growing? Uh, if it's to save money, you might do a cost-benefit analysis and decide you, you probably can't even grow marijuana for what you can buy it for. If it's for uh, a sick person, well, again, you, that is, everything's a flow chart. Where do you go from here? But the one thing that I found out by using the laboratories and testing laboratories that surprised me very much about marijuana was that We've come to understand and believe that the top bud and the nice cola, you know, that's the, the grade A, and then we call the trim, you know, listen, people say, you know, turn your trash into stash. We call it trash. The lesser bud down at the lower parts of the plant, uh, Tony and I always called that B grade. We always considered it a lesser grade of marijuana. But the interesting thing about it that we found out by testing our stuff in the lab was that the more surface area you have plant material-wise, the more it can grow trichomes. So if you're going after extraction, loose airy marijuana is the ticket. So that's another thing I tell people now. What are you growing for? If you're growing for extraction, I would never suggest to people that they try to grow that top shelf eye candy, you know, passes the bag appeal test. You'd be wasting your time and you'd also be hurting yourself because when the marijuana game becomes a, a game of extraction, there's going to be a set price for cannabinoids. And if you can't produce them for that rate, you're not going to be in the business. That's what I ask my prediction. And also, do you think that that's a possibility indoors, or do you think that at that point things will shift into sort of a greenhouse and outdoor kind of production? I think it'll be greenhouse and outdoor for that. I think there'll still be indoor production because we won't get away from flower, smoking flower. There's a place for all of it, but the predominant... Uh, market I think will be extraction because the value-added products that you can make from extracted cannabinoids 
uh, well, like let's say Florida, for example, and is, is, is going to probably pass a medical marijuana law in November, this November. Now, I know that there's going to be a lot of, I'll call them grays, I don't mean it detrimentally, I'm getting there myself, but there's going to be some of them that will remember and want to smoke marijuana, but the vast majority of the people there will not want to smoke and use marijuana in that way. They'll want value-added products, and you need cannabinoids to make that. Edibles and yes. topicals. Yeah, creams, tinctures, right. edibles, oils. Okay, you had a follow Well, like Mike's saying, everything has a true cost of production, whether it's you know, top-grade marijuana, cannabinoids, or terpenoids. In the end, whoever produces a superior product for a superior price is going to take the market share. And that's what this industry needs to, to, to learn, is there's people out there that are really, really, really good at this. And when they finally, finally team up and produce superior goods for superior prices, the consumer is just simply going to go, hey, I like the best product for the best price. And that's who I go with. And so, if, if you know, we, we're still kind of sort of in influx where a guy sitting in a room somewhere in a state is squeezing a bag of marijuana and he's determining that's $45 an eighth weed and this over here is $65 dollars an eighth weed he has no idea what those two marijuanas cost to produce did it cost six dollars a gram and he's selling it for nine or did it cost nine and he's selling it for six so until you start really calculating and and no garden in this the united states can really give a financial analyst exact cost production how many pennies dollars per gram I mean, and that's what you have to do. And it's very strain indicative. People really, really want these, these amazing, and I caught the tail end of it, like DJ says, these, these sativas he's referencing have amazing complexity, amazing terpene contents, amazing flavors, but will the customer pay for it? At the end, if I have a dispensary and I have a product on the shelf that costs $30 a gram, and I'm telling you that's the most amazing equatorial sativa ever, if you like it, you'll pay for it. If you don't, you won't. And the, the market will reach an equilibrium, if you will for the best quality prices for the best quality product and everybody will be right because they will buy what they want right we're gonna let the market decide <laughs> but uh scott i have a question for you um to take it back to cultivation because some of these people aren't growing in big huge warehouses yep. but they might uh one of the things rare dankness is known for is these sativas the ghost train haze and the the moonshine haze and stuff. Do you have any particular tips for people that are growing uh, longer flowering sativas? Indoors? Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's a funny saying that we used to go back to when all this was underground and, you know, you're always worried about the cops kicking in the door. Um, you, you know, go with as much light as you possibly can. Loose a few plants, you know, like less plants per light. They're going to bust you on the number of plants. They're not going to bust you on the number of lights. Uh, indoor growing sativas, I mean, once again, you're talking about plants that are used to being near the equator. They're used to receiving a, a, crazy, a crazy amount of UV uh, and, and sunlight. Um, you know, what we tend to find is, you know, when you hear of people, you know, having trouble with a finicky indoor sativa, it's like you're typically growing it under too many or too few of, uh, of wattage or too few lumens. Um, you want to make a sativa really, really happy indoors, allow it to spread out. Don't crowd it with other plants, add an extra light, you know, double your wattage if you can, um, you know, prune out that inner part of the plant that that's not going to get as much light. Um, so everything focuses to the end of the branches. And what about feeding? Are they, you typically tend to be lighter feeders? Well, I mean, if you're going with the, you know, like a soil based or a semi soil based, uh, you have to remember that plant is going 
into flowering a lot slower. Uh, it's taking longer to ripen. You know, you're you're basically you know keeping it happy over a longer period of time. So it's you know don't you know don't slam it with a lot of phosphorus. You know, ease into everything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, ultimately, I think they like a lot looser uh, substrate as well. They tend to do really really well in rockwell or uh, or hydro. Uh, aero setups are awesome. Um, if you get into a compost-based soil, uh, they tend to slow down and you know uh, show overwatering deficiencies and all kinds of stuff. All right, um, Kay, you you had mentioned earlier about uh, people who had grown really great bud, but then they messed it up in the drawing and curing process. Um, you know, take us through that last couple of weeks. Uh, the flushing, and then also understanding when to harvest. You know, how, do, how does someone take a look at their bud and know it's time? Well, I mean, first on, you know, don't overfeed your plants so you don't have to overflush them, you know, and then take that last two weeks if you're a soil base or something like that. I mean, if you're running straight hydroponics, I mean, it's kind of hard to just cut those things back to straight water. So you're going to have to do, give them a dilute solution or something. They're going to immediately just go yellow and fall apart. So, you know, in, in that, depending on style, you know, taper off the, 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 the nutrients or completely eliminate them, you know, flush them and you know, then when to pick, I mean, I always have to digress to, to, to Mel Frank pointing out Professor Mal, Dr. Malberg's study, who was uh, Rob Clark's uh, mentor as well. And, and, you know, that got into, you know, exact, uh, exact harvesting time by putting syringes inside of the actual captate stock trichrome and ex- uh, uh, taking the fluids out and analyzing them hour by hour, day by day. So it got pr- 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 pretty involved and pretty, pretty, pretty serious. But uh, you know, it depends on what how you're looking for. You know, traditionally we say if you if you want more of a couch lock, you wait for them to start turning a little bit amber, and you know the chemicals convert that way. If you want a little bit more uplifting, you pick them when they're still just going from clear to opaque. You know. But then after that, I see, uh, especially in the larger facilities, some of these people think that they can just get a whole, a big room and again, put heaters and dehumidifiers in it and and they can uh, put the the marijuana they harvest on Friday in with the marijuana they harvested on Monday. And it doesn't work because this is stuff starting to dry and this stuff's starting to release moisture. This is going to absorb the moisture and you end up with, you know, chlorophylls and things locked in and it just, it tastes like, hey, it tastes very, very nasty. So I have to explain to people that the Monday needs to be in with the Monday. The Tuesday needs to be with the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and each in a separate kind of environment. I know uh, Mike and and some of the outdoor growers up in Humboldt afforded luxuries of big, huge dry with real good airflow and just mountain air and it's just absolutely amazing but somewhere like Arizona you're not afforded that luxury it'll dry up like a popcorn piece really really quick or Scott will attest to, to Colorado to same thing Colorado in winter time I mean you got zero percent humidity it doesn't matter if you're 100 percent or minus 14 degrees it, that you know you're going to lock things in there so you don't want to dry it too uh, fast don't want to dry it too slow but you certainly don't want to impart flavors and, and moisture from one crop to the next so you've got to compartmentalize this stuff and create very separate environments for these things all right um, DJ, one of the things people ask me all the time, they all want to create their own strain. Now, obviously, we don't want to recommend everyone to go out and, and try and do that. But if, you know, let's basically break down the basics of that, maybe what, what an F1 is, what an S1 is, and, and a P1, and, and uh, give people just the basics of, of, a, of a breeding project. Sure. Um, the P1s are the first parental generation 
um, in, in my regimen that was uh, Highland Bahakan, Highland Thai, Chocolate Thai, and Afghan. Um, you cross those P1s, you come up with your F1 generation. Um, what I did was using those two very dissimilar uh, indica and sativa, um, I went both ways, pollen-wise, you know, uh, sativa to indica, indica sati to sativa. I preferred the indica pollen to the sativa female. All of my contemporaries, people I was working with at the time, went the other way because of how novel and unique the uh, indica plant was. Now, when you have two very dissimilar uh, P1s and you cross them, the F1 generation should be very uniform almost identical, um, and then crossing any two of those F1s to the F2 generation creates the diversity, a lot of diversity, especially if the uh, P1 parents are very different. Um, and from that point on, so from the F2s for blueberry, for example, I'll get a very berry male, a very berry female, cross them out to the F4. I should be seeing 25 to 50% of my progeny in that F4 showing the trait I'm breeding for. If I do, I know I'm on the right track. And same thing in the F4, um, very berry-leaning male, very berry-leaning female. You could use any flavor. I mean, it could be orange, it could be uh, uh, pine, cedar, um, I'm, I'm really looking for some of the frankincense um, and, and sweet cedars, uh, savory cedars. Now, in terms of judging herb, all right, this is very important. I judge herb strictly by the effect of the finished product. I don't care what that plant looks like, grew like, tastes like, smelled like, any of that. It has to pass the test of satisfying my needs first. Um, and I can't stress this enough. One of the great tests in the past, you know, when I would have, say, a gathering of people, and you fill several jars with different things and just see which jar empties first, the one people keep going back to, which is the basic, you know, test for a cup, um, I think. But keep that in mind all these incidental things. So, for example, you end up with two products that you're sampling, and they both have the exact same effect. You get the you know, same level of effect from both of them, but one tastes better than the other one. Well, by all means, go with the one that tastes better. Um, but those are secondary considerations to how that product makes me feel when it's you know, harvested, dried, cured properly, and... and consistently over time as well. Now there are five things, five objective things I look for when I'm judging herb very quickly. It's onset, how long before I feel the full effect. Duration, how long before the full of, or the effect is uh, diminished. Um, sealing, which refers to the more I smoke, the higher I go. A lot of couch lock indicas, three, four hits, you're not going any farther. Whereas a soaring sativa, 10, 11 hits, you're approaching an LSD-like uh, effect. So sealing. And here's a very important one that I think people overlook. Tolerance threshold. Burnout. You know, how long before I smoke it, before I've been there, done that, and just do not want to go back to that jar. Now I can say, for example, my blueberry, I've been smoking for over 30 years. It takes less than half for me to get the same effect from that. It takes six months to judge that characteristic from a strain. And then uh, finally, the fifth thing is shelf life. 
How long does that bud last in the jar? Again, heavy-hitting indicas can generally break down six months to a year. They're, they're worthless as bud. You might be able to extract some resin, whereas other strains actually cure out better. My favorite smoke right now is my Vanaluna cured three years plus in glass. And it's, it's like Thai. It's the closest thing I have sampled to, to the Thai weed. Um, so these are things that you can, you know, onset, stopwatch, duration, clock, um, ceiling, just how many hits. You keep track of these things and, again, keep those notes. So that's, you know, thumbnail of the regiment. Thank you. Um, and, Mike, uh, you do a lot of outdoor growing. Um, what are your ways of, deal of dealing with some of the elemental, like, you know, the elements that you have to deal with as far as wind, rain, bugs, powdery yeah, mildew? Yeah, all of those elements. Well, you know what? Uh, one of the first things I always tell people about growing marijuana, and in particular top-shelf marijuana, is there's no such thing as lazy hippies growing top-shelf medical marijuana. No offense to the hippies. They have a lot of hippie friends. But the point of saying that is this, is that all of the things that you have to do to have exceptional marijuana require effort on your part. It's all in how you trim, prune, tend to the plant, uh, it, wind is good for a plant when they're small, but when they're big and heavy with flower, it's not good for them at all if you don't have them protected. You could lose entire branches. Uh, water is not good for them, and yet at the same time, uh, so we want to cover them up, but at the same time we want to get full sun. So that's one of the reasons why we used to use a hoopie, was because when the weather's good, we could easily pull the plastic cover over and off, and when it looked like it was going to get wet or be storming, we could just throw it back over and run some staples in it and put it back down. Uh, we could use it for light depth at the same time. So you kind of have to take your, your just develop uh, ways to, to mitigate problems and you'll have better marijuana. Like, for example, when we, to take care of breaking branches outdoors, we just did it very, very simply. I, I sawed up two-by-fours on a... On a on a saw, a table saw, uh, about four or five of them out of each table, uh, each two by four. I'd point the ends and then just drive them into the four corners. If we needed another set, then I would turn it like a star of David and make the new corner here four. String it with cotton string. Now, when it gets down to the, I don't want it to get wet. I already have like a superstructure there that's very easy to take a drill and some wood screws and some more little wooden slats and create like a little pup tent thing that I can put a little plastic cover over an outdoor plant. And you'd be surprised at how much that helps because uh, and even with heavy dew, when you live in the mountains and you live in uh, places where the air exchange, the heat temperature exchange happens twice a day, say from uh, very cool to the sun comes out, <clears throat> that produces airflow, but it also has produced moisture overnight and uh, because when it went from hot to cool, it created the condensation. If you walk out into a garden, everything around you is wet, but the plants that are under the little plastic covers, they'll have like 90% less dew and moisture on them. So uh, bugs, I don't know how long you want me to go on. There's a, a million. Uh, Outdoor-wise, you don't get as much problems as you do indoor-wise. Uh, it, it could happen, especially in Southern California. I've seen trees uh, in Southern California overtaken by spider mites. <laughs> Just a regular average old tree. So they exist in the environment down there everywhere. So uh, 
but outdoors in the triangle, we never really had a problem with spider mites. We didn't really have a problem with bugs hardly at all, except for caterpillars. And, and one of the things that we discovered uh, through observation, through being in the garden year after year, was that every year a particular couple of little moths would show up. They're very small. One was white and one was yellow. We didn't know which one of them is responsible for the, for the caterpillars that we would get, but we kept fly swatters in the garden, and any time we'd see one, we'd take them out, yellow or white. I'm not a Buddhist, obviously, but... Uh, and we found that we had less problem with the caterpillars. So the more natural you can go, you know, the better you can go, right? Excellent. I'm going to take some questions if you guys have any uh, down here. I don't think we can take this too far. So uh, if anybody's got any questions, come on up uh, to over here. <laughs> yes, sir. My name's Rob. I'm with Cedar Grove Organics in Oregon uh, for DJ and Scott. Could you talk a little bit about your male selection and how you guys pick your breeding males? Um, yeah, first of all, there's no shortcut. Um, you've got to pollinate the female, mature the seeds, sprout them, and grow them out to see what the male's bringing <clears throat> to the table. There's a few things, uh, tackiness, resin production, of course, um, uh, flavor. Uh, stem rub on the male. Hollow stems is another indicator that it's more drug cannabis than, than fiber. Um, again, though, I, there, there is no shortcut. You've got to sprout those seeds out and see what they do to fully determine what the male brings to the table. But if you're, you know, just looking for traits to look for, um, I tell people all the time, you know, if I have bunch of plants I'm growing out and there's one star plant within the group that you know I'm keeping my fingers crossed that's the girl the whole time and it turns out to be a dude I mean at least flower them out and see what the flower clusters look like um, you know from my personal experience I go straight you know if you find a male that produces uh, resin I mean that's a, a, a guy you got to jump on um, pollen can have smell. I mean, there can be fragrances to to the to uh, to pollen. So that's also a trait I tend to look for. Um, but yeah, man, you gotta you gotta use them. Gotta grow them out and grow them out in large numbers, not just crack a ten pack. All right. Uh, any other questions over here? One second. Uh, I was just uh, on the other side of the mountains, and I was just wondering: is there any problems that can come up because of all the smoke that we had over there? Is there any? I mean, uh, for, forest fires will definitely impart a smoky smell and flavor to your herb. You know, like that's that's no question. Um, I mean, you can get we we tend to get some pretty big nasty forest fires in Colorado. You know, uh, there's been a couple of years where I've had outdoor plants that have gotten ash and stuff like that on them. But uh, unless it's you know raining acid rain on them, you shouldn't shouldn't have any issues. Yeah, and I just like to say I do prefer the east side of the state myself. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a well-kept secret, if you don't know, 300 days of sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is for, uh, I have an opinion between all of you guys. I'm actually from Florida, and I'm doing a lot of things in Florida right now. And I noticed DJ Shore said that the tropical is better, but at the same time, I've lived there my whole life. And I know everything's going to be deprivation, greenhouse, a lot of indoor because the humidity levels. Um, storm will come through, rip everything apart in a second. So I'm wondering... You know what? What are we doing in place there and on on that? Because I get these questions all day long, and I tell everyone it's probably not going to happen too often. You know, so. Well, I'll say this much: both Florida and Mississippi grow good pot. 
<laughs> Florida, it's a lot like Jamaican. You know, a lot of the greenhouses that are going to be built in Florida, I mean, there's quite a bit of uh, structure that's been there for, you know, the, the last 30 years or so. I mean, there's thousands of acres of greenhouse already, you know, already in play. But, uh, I mean, a roof is relatively cheap to replace on a, you know, on a structure. Um, you know, any, mo most things are going to pop up indoors down there because, uh, you know, it's just easier to control environment all the way around. Now, he mentioned light depth. Can, maybe, Mike, can you uh, elaborate a little bit about what light deprivation sure. uh, is? Uh, yeah, sure. And, and I'll talk about Florida in a second, too. But the thing about light depth is that, you know, you can fool the plants. You lie to them. They don't know where they're at. They're relying on a light cycle. And by the way, marijuana is very, very particular about its light cycle. That's why you want to be precise about it, even if you're light depping. It's basically the practice of protecting and blocking the sun from your greenhouse with a tarp that won't let any light get in. You still have to provide an environment of airflow through there, uh, but you're the one deciding what their sleep schedule is, what their light and dark periods are by depriving them of light. Uh, while I'm talking about it, I might as well give you the very best tip I can about that, and that is that when we have like a hoopie that we're using for light depth, I string lights up in the top of it, not big fancy grow lights, uh, just regular garden bulbs that, you know, the, the big bulbs that go in a reflector, uh, simply because sometimes what happens is that you'll get, say, maybe a little bit of rain on the greenhouse uh, or on the, on the clear cover, and you go to pull your other tarp over, and, and it's, it doesn't want to go, so you have to go back and forth from end to end, and it's five minutes later than you tarped it up last night. It may or may not make a difference. I don't want it to. So one of the ways that I prevent that is that in the morning when I'm going to take the tarp off, I just go out there and when it's time, I just flip the switch and I turn the lights on. So I can, it can take me an hour to get that tarp off. By the same token, uh, I can tarp it up early if I'm by myself. I can turn the light on, go get the tarp on, even if it takes me an hour to get it on by myself. Uh, all I have to do at the time that the light's supposed to go out is just walk over there and flip the switch off. Uh, so that's light depth. As far as Florida, I wanted to talk to you about. Well, I doubt people are going to grow in the natural medium there, <laughs> right, Scott? But, uh, but the one thing that I wanted to mention is, remember we talked about matching things up. I, I, I don't have any Florida experience, but I understand humidity. I understand what DJ says about tropical marijuana. I think the key to Florida is going to be if you're growing in a greenhouse, uh, you need to be able to thinking about two things. Number one is providing all kinds of airflow, uh, keeping the air as dry as you can without spending too much money. The other thing is don't expect to grow that top shelf tight, bag appeal bud that's going to get sold out of a glass jar, but you'll probably be able to grow the hell out of that extraction weed that we're talking about that's airy, loose, has lots of surface area, and is mo money, mo money, mo money. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to be growing anything in the ground, man. If it's, if it's going to be greenhouse, you know, it's going to be ISO standards that are going to be on tables. Well, and, I mean, and don't, don't forget, in Florida, you have access to something very valuable, seaweed. And, and bear that in mind. Mm. I mean, we've talked talked to three or four groups. So that, I mean, there are people talking 
freaking stacked pods. There's people talking. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, like, yeah, it's ridiculous. Just keep in mind, if you're going to use seaweed, uh, always rinse the salt off with plain water as well. <laughs> uh, question here. As big money from places such as Wall Street get into the whole industry, how do you see that affecting product on the market that appeals to the lowest common denominator and takes things like, I, I prefer to smoke spliffs, but I choose to go and buy organic natural tobacco. So you're ready for the, the harsh truth, man. Right, but, uh, <laughs> but you have yeah. the companies that take the tobacco and make it uh, Marlboro. It's yeah. awful. So what you're about to see is the industry is about to split into two distinct factions. Uh, the medical side, is about to get swallowed up by Big Pharma. No matter what you guys think and want to fight for, uh, if you're on the medical aspect of this and you're want running a mom and pop type organization, uh, as soon as the FDA flips the rescheduling of cannabis, it's, it's over, it's game over for the whole medical scene that's, that's here in the US. What's gonna keep us alive is the grassroots movement for adult usage. Um, the recreational aspect, we've seen now that you know, Colorado's been weed legal for half a year. Uh, murders have gone down, car wrecks have gone down, DUIs have gone down, uh, tax revenues up, depending, you know, you know, no matter what you wanna hear on the news, like our schools are funded, we have great roads, um, our parks are now getting money. Um, that's, that's what's about to happen. So every place that's going medical, right now, Illinois, Connecticut, Florida, New York, it's big money, man. Like, this isn't a mom and pop grassroots thing that happened in Colorado. When I opened my dispensary in Colorado, which was Stone Mountain, it was 2009. I did it with $5,000 and like 10 pounds of my own herb that I had grown. You know, um, you can't get into business now unless you got $3.2 million to be able to afford all the licensing, to be able to afford a 40 or 50,000 square foot, you know, grow, and to be able to afford all the taxes running the front end not being able to deduct things i mean it's 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 pretty ridiculous so on on all of that being said the grassroots movement for adult usage is where we have to draw the line and maintain you know our ability to keep that quality you can't force out the microbrewers you can't force out the small vineyard producers so you're not going to be able to force out the small quality controlled you know, cannabis for adult use. Mm -hmm. The medical side, I mean, Big Pharma's gonna do that. They're gonna save some people. They're gonna make a lot of money off everybody. But we can maintain what's gonna happen on the recreational side. We can maintain that upper end echelon that we as a culture have been involved with for the last 30 years. And it's really up to us to say, you know, no, I don't want your money unless I'm going to be able to do what I want with it. And regardless of what the law says, grow your own. Yes. Yeah, man. I mean, ultimately, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, you know, the, the end that, game for me is legalization. Mm -hmm. I have a mom, you know, in Alabama that's, you know, pushing 70 years old. She's got lupus and everything else. I want her to be able to grow her own plants with there being no repercussions to her. Mm -hmm. I don't want her to have to rely on Pfizer or some, you know, big pharma, you know, conglomerate. People, to do people, that. people are constantly asking me, like, aren't you afraid of Monsanto and Marlboro and all the? The only way 
they can harm us is if we can't grow our own. If we can grow our own, right. we don't need them and we don't need anything they, they bring to the table. But, but also this is our industry. It's always been our industry and will always be our industry because we, we, we are the innovators of the products and, and, and more so than the person that struck gold, it's the people that invented the picks and shovels. So it's up to us to invent the new picks and shovels for this industry. There's a lot of stuff that Big Pharma doesn't even know they need. We're here, we've had the experience, we're the people that you know, need to develop these products. If it's not just the raw cannabis, it's what to do with the cannabis. And, and we are the innovators, uh, West Coast, uh, always have, always will be. <laughs> yeah, and just real Mike, quick, you guys, I just wanted to say and give you an analogy. I, I really, you know, marijuana saved my life, but for the first th probably 20 years that I used it, I didn't even know it was medical. And I'm never going to throw little Johnny under the bus that uses marijuana and he doesn't even know why. I'm never going to do that. And I think that as an analogy, marijuana prohibition in our country is like a broke down piece of shit car in the middle of proverbial Main Street America. Now, a lot of people want to leave it there because guess what? They make money off the spectacle. And see, our problem as marijuana users is we're opposing each other on two different ends of the car. Some of us are pushing on the end of the car, and a lot of the newcomers to the movement are, and you can't blame them. They're parents. They don't know much about marijuana, but they want it legal for their kid. They're pushing on the end of the car that says medical use only. I push on the other end of the car that says legal for everybody. Yes. And that's the way to get the car out of the intersection. It's the only way to get the car out of the intersection and that takes care of everybody. And so that's what we got to get across to our friends and our neighbors and our relatives. It, it's not about whether some marijuana use is more defendable, more acceptable, uh, or any of that. It really boils down to does any person on this globe have a right to tell me that I can't use a plant that can give me food, fuel, fiber, medicine, recreation. No. No, they can't. That's the argument. So thank you for letting All me right. foam at the mouth. You guys, we're out of time. Uh, we're all going to be out, outside the doors. You can ask us some follow-up questions and stuff if you guys want. And thank we're going to be Danny. outside. Thank Everybody, you, Thank you, Danny. <laughs> Tell Danny guys. thank you, everyone. Woo. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right, so I hope you guys enjoyed that panel. We really had a blast putting that on for the people of uh, the Pacific Northwest Cup, the Seattle Cup, the Everett Cup, the uh, There's a, Puget, U.S. The Cannabis Puget Cup Puget in Washington. Sound, yeah. U.S. Cannabis Cup in Washington. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like uh, you know people enjoyed the panel. It was a, a nice crowded room. A lot of them, actually, at the beginning, I, I just – asked for a show of hands and there were a lot of free weed listeners in the audience yeah yeah i gave out some stickers and uh people were very excited a lot of people had some very kind words about the podcast um primarily saying they wish we would do more of them so mm, yeah. <laughs> well you know uh, we got a, a, a tweet from a gentleman who wants to be our intern so yeah. that's exciting nice yeah nice and right. you said there were some issues yeah we have a couple issues okay so apparently allegedly uh, and again, the source couldn't be shakier on this because you are the source. Whoa. But apparently, uh, someone came up to you and said, "Hey, where is your assistant?" <laughs> and you said, I, "Who? Who's? My, what are you talking yeah, about?" And an he assistant. said, "What did he say?" About? He said, "You know, the guy with the glasses and the beard that sort of follows you around with a clipboard." 
I said, oh, what? And tells you what to do, I believe <laughs> tells is what he said. tells you what to do. Uh, first of all. Mike Hughes. Yeah, no. I, am, I just want to clear this up. <laughs> if that actually happened, uh, I am not Dan's assistant. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> I would be um, a very, very, I'd be even sadder than I am generally right but now. That, if that is were the, the case, perception so. out It's not the perception. The world, first so. of all, a person who follows you around and tells you what to do is a boss. So really, I think what he meant was, where is your boss? Oh, you're a boss. Uh, well, anyway. <laughs> the point is, I am not Danko's assistant, and um, I really hope I never colleagues. hear that again. We're colleagues. We're colleagues. It's yes, true. That's We're true. colleagues. We are co-hosts. Mm-hmm. You are my producer. That's right. And we used to be fantasy football buddies, but but not this year. Yeah. Um, okay. The other little point of business that I needed to say, uh, I am starting a strain name competition. Now... Uh, the question is, what should Danny Danko's strain be called? And now we don't have a strain, so we're sort of working backwards here. We're going to start with the name and then create it. So so what do you guys think? I'm going to get you started with two suggestions, but feel free to tweet uh, at Danny Danko, at Mike Hughes underscore, what you think the name should be. So first off, I have Double D-O-G. <laughs> I kind of like that one. You know, it's fun to say. Second, Stanko. Now, if it was Stanko, it would have to be a, a pungent, stinky, skunky kind of strain. But I think Stanko, double D-O-G, that's what I'm throwing out. Uh, free weed people, let us know what you think. So, again, at MyQs underscore, at Danny Danko on Twitter. You can get us on uh, email. It's freeweed at hightimes.com. What should Danny Danko's strain be called? You got any suggestions? What do you think? <laughs> I do not have any suggestions. I think, I think you're ready. You know, we got the greats out there. We have the Jack Herrers of the world. We have the Lester Grinspoons. We need the Danny Danko strain. <laughs> so I think that it's time. Well, you know, it's an honor to even be thought of in that way. Yeah. Uh, I don't actually mean Stango's to honor you. probably not super right. honoring. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, you know, hey. Hey. All right. Uh, so I'll that is the get. thing. Um, we will be back, you know, probably next week uh, with all. We, we're getting a ton of questions and comments and shoutouts, and we want to get to all of them. So we will do that in episode seventy. Yes. Now that we are safely back, and now you are heading out to Boston today, yeah? I will be at the Boston Freedom Rally uh, Saturday and Sunday. I don't know when this is going up, but I will be there. So hopefully, <laughs> if I see you there, I'll have a sticker or something to give you. Um, always excited to meet people at the rallies and, and, and hear about uh, their grows and their experiences and, and if we've helped them uh, with anything and all of that. So, yeah, Boston Freedom Rally, one of my favorite uh, marijuana events that's not you know directly high times related, although we are there with a booth and we are speakers and you know we're longtime supporters of the rally. It's the 25th year of the rally. Uh, I think it's the second year that they've gone for two days in a row, Saturday and Sunday. And, of course, we're going to be honoring our, our buddy uh, KOP, Michael Malta, who passed away shortly after last year's rally and uh, is instrumental in, you know, the mass can thing and, and, and putting on the rallies and a great friend and a great loss to the world. So uh, I know that, you know, this rally will definitely be uh, in his honor and, uh, you know, in his spirit as well. Absolutely. And uh, and where are you going to be? How can people kind of find you at the rally? I'll be at the High Times booth or I'll be speaking on the uh, Hitman Glass stage. I'll be speaking on the smaller uh, stage as well. I'll be, I'll be all around. It's, it's all Boston Commons. It's not as big as uh, the way that Seattle is, uh, you know, Hempfest is so spread out. It's all right there on the Commons. So, uh, yeah, I hope to see you guys there. And if this airs afterwards, I hope I saw you there. 
Very well played. That kind of <laughs> takes me off the hook a little bit. Uh, before we go, I just want to say uh, thank you to the Comcast Arena and all of the people who attended the uh, the Seattle U.S. Cannabis Cup. Also, all the vendors. Everyone was great. Uh, it was wonderful to be out there. We had a great time, so thank you very much. Yeah, um, absolutely. It was a blast. Yeah. You got anything else? Uh I guess, uh, you know, Amsterdam tickets for Amsterdam Cannabis Cup are now on sale. So check out CannabisCup.com if you want to come over to Holland with us and party over there. So, yeah, we're excited. I think Deltron is one of the performers, the great Del, uh, the funky homo sapien. Yeah, we had him in San Francisco two years ago, I think, He's played Amsterdam for us as well, I think. So, yeah. yeah, He's uh, a great show. Yeah, Del is a great show. Yeah, he was in San Fran at the Craneway Mm -hmm. Pavilion, I think, a couple years ago. a couple years back. Um, Dell always puts on a great show, and we're excited about that. And we've got a few other acts as well. Yeah, so. I think Revolution and the Dirty Heads. If Dirty you like Heads, the Rock or the, been, the wait, Reggae. We've been trying to get those guys for a long time. Revolution and Dirty Heads. They are uh, part of that generation. You know, the post Sublime generation of uh, great rock and roll, reggae tinged, amazing ganja fueled music, and we're excited about that as well. Yeah, I can't wait to get back to the Milkwag. Please join us in Amsterdam. It's the original. Check out the original yeah, Cannabis the Cup. The 27th annual 27th. Cannabis Cup. So wow. um, very excited about that and hope to see you there. Thanks to BC Northern Lights. Thanks to Jacques and Winstrong. Thanks to co-host and producer Mike Hughes. <laughs> Not assistant. Thanks <laughs> thanks to all of you listeners. Uh, share the show with your friends if you think they need to learn how to grow for free. Um, you know, We hope this is a good resource for them. And so if you like it, share it. If you... Um, see it on iTunes, give it a comment, give it a you know high rating. Uh, you know, check us out on Stitcher, check us out on SoundCloud, check us out at hightimes.com slash freeweed, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. So uh, yeah, big ups to you, the listeners. Without you, we are nothing. No thing? No thing. No, nothing. Without you, we are no thing. Okay. Well, we're a thing. We're just not a very interesting thing. Right, yeah. exactly. It's just you and I talking. Yapping. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, wrap it up with raw papers. Is that- oh, right. I forgot to say, we were <laughs> what you had just been listening to was the wrap-up, the raw wrap-up, because yep. we wrap it up with raw. We do? That's how we roll. Yeah. And then we dab it up with dabs. Indeed we do. <laughs> All right, episode 69, put it in the books. <laughs> <laughs>